Pastor John here giving you a hearty welcome to our broadcast. I hope you'll stay long enough to hear an important message at the end of the service. We're just getting started in our new series, Walking It Out, designed to help us all learn what living out our salvation looks like. Last week, we asked, what kind of church do you want to be? Our sermon today asks, what kind of believer do you want to be? Finding answers and looking at four characteristics of Paul found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Let's join the service and see what those answers are. I'd like you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. While you're turning there, I spoke last week of a pastor's retreat I was invited to last year up in Massachusetts. We were four days in this beautiful campground and just free-form rambling discussion went on. Um, last week's question was, what kind of church do you want your church to be? What kind of church do you want WBF to be? Well, they asked the second question now, their follow-up was, what kind, of, what kind of believer do you want to be? So we talk about the characteristics of the church last week. This week we're going to talk about characteristics of the individual believer. That's our question for the morning. That's also the title for our sermon. So let, let me explain again the series that we're in. It's called Living It Out, uh, and it, it's Paul's both letters to the Thessalonians, uh, and literally saying, okay, you're a new church. This is how things work. This is how it's supposed to be. Well, how does that apply to us? How do we live out the calling of the gospel upon us? How do we live out the union that we have with each other? How do we live out our daily Christian life? And that's um, we, we hope to tease some of these applications out of these two letters. So last week we heard about distinguishing characteristics of a small, brand new church in Thessalonica. And this week as we moved into chapter 2, we're going to get a close look at Paul and his personal life, his heart, his relationship with this uh, beleaguered church. They were excited, but they were having some problem as well. But buried in this message, we can find four characteristics that all of us should be able to share as believers. Now, they're not the only characteristics we're going to have, but they're the four that Paul is putting on display here so that the Thessalonians can see what it looks like. In other words, we're going to see what the church should look like. Now we're going to see what the individual members of the church should look like, how they should live their lives. So here are these four characteristics. Four character, I'm calling them four characteristics of a godly person. We see Paul's motive in verses 1 through 6. We see his maintenance. So I'll explain that in 7 through 9. But I had to come up with an M, right? We'll see Paul's manner in 10 through 12. And then we'll see his message in 13 through 16. I'll tell you something. I spent about an hour prepping on my sermon, but I spent 14 hours coming up with the alliteration. Now, I appreciate your prayers. <laughs> Let's take a look at Paul's motive, starting in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now, Paul feels that he needs to explain what's going on to the recipients of the letter. And things may not have gone the way he expected. He wants him to know that even though Things didn't go the way he thought they would go, that God is still moving. Nothing's been done in vain. There's been nothing wasted. But that doesn't really, and and I think we've all been in those situations where God has been working in our lives, but things haven't turned out the way we thought they would. 
Matter of fact, we might be a little bit disappointed in the way things turn out. We thought this was going to happen. We thought this person was going to do that. We thought this situation was going to resolve itself. And it doesn't always work that way. And so we look at that. And, you know, I used to hang around with a group of people that would say, oh, something, something didn't happen this morning. The Holy Spirit didn't show up. And, you know, and Kelly and I got into tension with these folks because I started saying, things, well, wait a minute, I thought he was inside us. How could he not show up? Did we leave him at home? Did we forget to get him in the car? So sometimes we, when the situations don't work out the way we would like them to, we think, well, that was a waste of time. Have you ever heard that? God's still moving. The fact that the hard times come and knowing that God's still moving doesn't make the hard times any easier. We don't want to paint a smiley face on everything. The hard times are still a struggle. And it can be hard if we're honest with ourselves. It can be hard to maintain our priorities during those hard times. Because we're kind of consumed with this isn't going to happen. Or maybe, maybe you're familiar with this. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I'm losing sleep over it. Things might not turn out the way I want them to. They might be uncomfortable. Is God still moving? Yes. God is still moving. Yes, God has given us a promise, hasn't he, that everything will be done for our good and his glory? Sometimes that doesn't feel so good. It doesn't mean that it's not good. So Paul wants him to understand this, and he says in verse 2, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So Paul had a really hard time in Philippi. You can read about it in Acts 16. The whole city turned against him. And he and his crew were beaten and they were thrown in prison, but their testimony there was powerful. We find out that Gentiles came to know the Lord. But for Paul, I mean, we go, okay, well, you know, people were, but, but for Paul, it was painful. It hurt. Now, Kelly and I had a chance to tour Philippi in 2010, and we saw the cell that Paul was imprisoned in. It's a hole in the ground. It's about three by four feet. He was stuck in the ground. It's not a good experience for Paul, yet God was moving. And still, when it was through and they finally moved on, Paul could very easily have left Philippi. You know what? I'm not liking this. This is not doing what we thought it would do. And everybody's mad at us. And I keep on hurting. They're beating me with rods and putting me in prison and this and that. Yeah, I think we're going to give it a rest. But Paul moves in the next city, Thessalonica. And what's he do? He does the same thing. He continues to preach the gospel. Paul had a charge. Paul had a calling upon him. And he wasn't going to let worldly issues interfere with what he had been called to do. Sure enough, he has problems in Thessalonica too. The Jews chased him out. It was ugly. And and he wants this young congregation that he's writing to to understand that the gospel is not always a popular message. 
Now, there are parallels to where we are in our culture right now because we're seeing this incredible shift away from the church is a bunch of good guys, they seem like nice people, to we're haters, we're bigots, we're narrow-minded. This is what was going on in Thessalonica. Paul brings truth, truth that's powerful, truth that can change lives, and this, this church, this new church embraced that truth, but still there's trouble in the city over it. Paul had to leave the city quickly and didn't have an opportunity to give them an explanation as to why he was leaving. And he knows that some might wonder what had happened. And he also knows that people like to speculate. We love that, don't we? I mean, we we love to just fill in the blanks. Oh, I heard Paul had to leave the city because he fell into sin. He was embarrassed. You know how this works. The whispers start in the corner. They get a little bit of traction here and there, and all of a sudden, everybody believes it. Oh, Paul was just here for the money. Yeah, but we didn't give him any. Oh, but he was here for the money. So we, we love to fill in the blanks, and that's what was happening in Thessalonica. There was a lot of talk against him. There was so much that they chased him to Berea. We love to fill in the blanks and assume to know things that are impossible for us to know. And we do that on a daily basis. Here's how the situation looks. Here's what I think is going on. That must be truth. Paul wants the church to know that his heart is true. He doesn't want them to fall victims to conjecture and what happened to him or why it happened. So he shares his heart with them. In verse 3, he says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul has no interest in public opinion. He's not really worried about what people are saying about him. But he wants the church in Thessalonica to know that he preaches to please and glorify God. Now, we need to listen to this. He preaches to please and glorify God. There's a lot of things that come along with that. But here are Paul's primary goals. His heart's desire is to please and glorify God. Who checks him, who checks Paul regularly on this? God tests the hearts of his preachers and teachers. The question is whether or not preachers and teachers are willing to be examined. But did you hear that? Did you hear why Paul preaches? Listen carefully. He's not preaching to grow the church. That's not his primary goal. He's not preaching to attract people. He's not preaching to even please people, and he's not even preaching to convert people. Those are goals, but they're secondary to Paul's primary goal, which is to please and glorify God. This is why Paul can walk from Philippi to Thessalonica, which was probably about a 10-day walk, and do the same thing he was doing in Philippi, even though he'd been thrown in that hole in the ground. 
Because he's not there. He's not there to prove anything to anybody. He's there to please and glorify God. Now, that should cause us to pause and say, why am I going to church? What am I doing here? Because our goals should be the same as Paul's, to please and glorify God. So a lot of people, and again, we're in a culture where they've taught us that church should satisfy your needs. There's nothing wrong with being ministered to. That should be a secondary goal of the church. But the primary goal is to please and glorify God. It's why we come together. It's why this time that we share is so special. Our focus is on him, not on ourselves. And if we can keep it there and carry that with us as we leave on Sunday afternoon, it might still be there on Monday morning. Oh. Do I go to church so that my Monday morning will be focused on God? Yes! Yes! That should also resolve some of the differences we have with churches that are different than us. If their goal is to please and glorify God, and our goal is to please and glorify God, then we should be able to set those secondary differences aside and say we're all on the same journey. Hard to do when everything in the culture says it's about you, it's about you, it's about you, it's about you. You've got rights, you've got privileges, you have things that the the, the culture owes you. We naturally transfer that to our church. Why do we come? Now, Paul thinks that the Thessalonians should already know his heart motivation because they spent some time with him. In five, he says, we never came with words of flattery, as you know nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Now, this is in the context of in Paul's time, there were literally dozens, if not hundreds, of people in the Macedonian and Jewish countrysides that claimed to be the Messiah, claiming to be something they weren't. They seduced their followers with lofty promises. They were running around saying, you can have your best life now. You know, if you can have your best life now, what does that say about heaven? Just think about these things, okay? That you can, you can be rich now. You can have these things now. It can be about you. You can be happy. You can be content. And, and they, they would hook their listeners with that type of flattery and then take money from them. So there's nothing wrong with giving to the church, please. <laughs> okay? But the motivations for giving are what? To please and glorify God. Not to be satisfied with somebody's flattery or, or somebody complimenting you so much. And, and these, these itinerant messiahs would take money or goods or anything that they could. And then they'd leave. They'd move on to the next town. Now, Paul's saying, you know, you, I, we spent some time together. And, you know, I'm not like that. But, you know, I've had some trouble and I've had to move from time to town. But my heart's desire is to please and glorify God. That, that's Paul's first characteristic, his motivation. It's not corrupt. It's not selfish. It's pure, and it's honest. It's transparent. And he goes on by explaining how he supports himself. So that moves us to his second characteristic, what I've called his maintenance. Verse 7, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. 
Again, at, you, you look at the context where this is, and you'll find the true meaning of what Paul's getting at here. He, he just said, as apostles, we, we certainly, I mean, verse 6, just to paraphrase verse 6, he says, as apostles, we, we, we have authority, we have authority given us by God, but we've never used it selfishly. We've never used it for our own grain. And, and in verse 7, he says, we didn't wield this authority in an abusive or domineering fashion. We were gentle. There's a lot of talk today about abuse from church leadership. We're not seeing that in Paul. We're not seeing the self-centeredness. We're not seeing the, the dictatorial rule over a congregation. At least we don't see it in Paul. We shouldn't see it in our churches today either. Paul says we were gentle. In verse 8 he says, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. So it's easy to take a look at this verse and say, oh, Paul wasn't taking any pay. Because that's kind of how we read burden here. And we see that early in his career as an apostle, Paul certainly was what we would call today bivocational. He was a tent maker. He would do that. But as Paul traveled through his various missionary journeys and everything, he was planting churches, wasn't he? And when he would go into a new town, certainly he would not take anything to sustain himself from that new church. But again, as he planted more and more churches, he would call upon the churches he had already planted to send gifts, not just to help the new church get on its feet, but for Paul to take care of the people that were traveling with him. So in this verse here, Paul's burden is not, it's not that we didn't take any pay. He's not saying that, that pastors shouldn't be paid. Praise God. <laughs> but what he's saying is the authority we have as apostles, the teaching that we brought to you, we, we didn't levy upon you in such a heavy fashion that it became a trial for you. We didn't become a burden to you because of the way we acted, because of the way we treated you. And that's what these itinerant preachers are doing. They're becoming a burden upon you. They're giving you legalistic things that you need to do in order to be closer to God. We're just bringing the gospel of God. And that shouldn't be a burden. That should be a freedom to you. Paul wants them to know that in every way, Paul is trusting the Lord for his daily needs. That's what this is all about. He would sometimes receive blessings from churches he had helped plant, but Paul's daily sustenance, his maintenance, his second characteristic, comes from the Lord because he's trusting that as he preaches the word of God, that God will take care of him. That God will not only meet his needs, but preserve and protect him and move him along as he goes through the region, spreading the word of God. Not by placing a burden on anybody. So this helps to explain Paul's manner, how he behaves. And this is our third characteristic, verse 10. Your witnesses and God also. Now notice how Paul holds himself accountable to this new congregation. He's not above them. Uh, so he's holding himself accountable to his spiritual children, but primarily to God as well. 
He's aware fully that he's supposed to be an example to them. That his behavior is supposed to be uh, something that they would imitate. But he's also acutely aware that God sees everything. We've talked about this a few times, haven't we? The myth of privacy. Paul knows that God sees his heart. Paul knows that God sees everything he does and knows why he does it. And so Paul's saying to this congregation, I'm doing the best I can to follow what God tells me to do. You should do the same thing, not because I'm such a great person, but because my focus is on my Father in heaven. And your focus should be there as well. And if it's not, understand, understand that he knows your heart. He knows everything you do when you think no one knows what you're doing. See, this is one of the blessings and maybe one of the burdens of our union with Christ, isn't it? I mean, let's be honest. There are times we would rather he weren't around. Good thing we can't undo that because God will hold us accountable, not unto our condemnation, but unto our further sanctification. Paul's manner is an example. He says, you are witnesses in God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father and his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul's behavior his manner, this third characteristic, how he lives, should not just be an example to everyone, but should be an encouragement to them, an encouragement for them to live in a like manner. Paul's traveling companions, the people that were with him, are already living like that. So the new believers in Thessalonica know that they can do it too. It's not for them to put themselves on display. It's to say, look what God's doing in our lives. He can do the same thing in yours. Spirit is in us and he's in you too. So all of these characteristics that we've seen so far, Paul's motives, his maintenance, his manner, seem to validate Paul's message, which is of primary importance. This is his fourth characteristic, starting in verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Now Paul's getting down to, okay, I told you all this. We're an example. You know my heart's motivation. You know what sustains me and everything. Now let me tell you what what I taught you and why it's important. He reminds them of how enthusiastically they received the word. But he also is cautious to tell them the word was from God, not from men, not from Paul, not from his cohorts. They're just the messengers. They're just bringing the word of God. The message comes from God. And the church knows this because that message is working in them. Listen carefully. Paul is saying, you know those changes you're going through? You know that stirring of your heart? You know those quiet moments when something inside you says, I want to be closer to God? It might not be a real loud voice. It might just be an inkling. It might be a whisper in your ear. You know, you should be reading your Bible. You know, you should be praying. You know, you shouldn't be getting angry at these people here. 
You know, don't you want to be closer to God? He said, that's the evidence that you have embraced the message and the message is from God. It's working in them. That desire you have to know more about God, more about his word, that is the message of the gospel. And it is transforming you, drawing you closer to your father in heaven. Listen to it. Listen to it. As proof of the transformation, Paul mentions the evidence of it. Verse 14, for you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, where it all started. Primary evidence of their transformation is that they become imitators of other godly churches, even as those other godly churches are encouraged to imitate Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that the church in Thessalonica has to do everything the other churches were doing. We need to understand this as well. It doesn't mean that all churches should be imitating the attributes of God and his son in the same manner. The way they practice this may differ some. That practice is called ecclesiology. It's what we do when we come together. It's what conducts our service. So the ecclesiologies may differ, but the goals are the same. And if that's true, then one of the consequences of making the gospel the goal is being set apart is for you suffered, Paul says, the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. I don't like that. Because every time I read about the churches in the New Testament, they're going through some oppression. Oh, I want to become a believer so I can be happy and carefree. Haven't we done that? Hasn't the church oversold heaven? Don't you want to go to heaven? Got to believe in Jesus Christ. You want to be in heaven. Streets are paved with gold, you know. But that's not what we're seeing in Scripture. It says when you come to follow Christ, the world's not going to like you. We'll get to that in just a second. But the people experienced in Thessalonica uh, experienced what Paul experienced, what the churches in Judea did, And scripture tells us that this is common treatment. Look what the world did to Christ. Look what the world did to his followers. Verse 15, it says that the world killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. So the whole world hates the message of the gospel. For unbelievers, we need to understand this, brothers and sisters. There's no seeker-sensitive movement. The world hates the gospel. Scripture says there are none who seek God. Now, there, there are several areas where we see this. Romans 3.1. Contact me if you want the list. I'll send it to you. Psalm 10, Psalm 14, a few others. And if you read scripture carefully enough, you're going to find that from time to time it says that there are those who seek God, but it's always talking about the people that are in the church, the people that are believers, the people that have received salvation. They continue to seek God. That's that that thing inside us that keeps us drawn closer and closer to him. And this is why any movement in the church to make the church more attractive to the culture fails. 
The only way the church can be more attracted to the world is if they become more like the world and less like God. Why? Why is that true? Because the world hates God and hates us. Again, I've got a list of, of, message, of, of scriptures that I can give you on that, but scripture is very clear that those who are not saved, those who don't belong to God, hate him. This is why transformation is so important because when you come to Jesus Christ, the hate that you have for God turns into love. Why? Because he loved you first. Wow. Everybody hates him. Oh, I'm agnostic. I don't have an opinion one way or the other. Yes, you do. The message that Paul brought and the message he charged his church plant with and the message that you and I are charged with today is not popular. And we should try not to think that we're going to be liked because we're nice people. This is not a contemporary church growth idea. We should, thank you, David. We should also try to understand, brothers and sisters, that there's no politician that's going to make us likable or attractive to the culture. There's no legislation that occurs in Washington, D.C. that's going to make us acceptable. We're not, if you hear nothing today, hear this. We are not the majority. We are the remnant. Isn't that how God works his most powerful work? Through the remnant? We are the remnant. So all this talk of our rights and our privilege and everything has to go away. We're not the majority. Being set apart for God's purposes makes the world angry. Paul says, that's okay. Let him be angry. Because in the end, the wrath is God, of God has come upon them at last. He says the wrath of God has, will come upon them finally. Paul assures believers that they're going to escape God's wrath, but unbelievers are not. Those who hate God, the wrath of God is assured to fall upon them. It will happen just as God's word is true. And there's no escape. There's no way out from being the victim of God's wrath other than in and through Jesus Christ and his shed blood on the cross. Paul's message divides, sometimes friends and families. His message is hard, and and for some, it can be lonely. But all who hear it, all who embrace it, are transformed by it. This is what salvation is. Those who hate God, those who hate the church and the message, it means destruction and doom. For those who love the message, it means salvation and eternal time with God. Paul knows it's a hard message. He's an encourager. So before he moves on, he wants to brighten their day. It's what encouragers do. Verse 17, but since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see your face again. He says, Silas and Timothy, me, we want to see you again. We miss the church in Thessalonica. Verse 18, because we wanted to come to you, 
I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Paul tried to come, but it didn't work out. And Paul's not saying, oh, God wanted me to come to you, but Satan stopped it. He's just saying, you know, to me, it was an evil thing that I couldn't come and see you. Wants him to know that they're on his heart. Verse 19, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. And so Paul just wants him to know, I see God working in you. I'm not there, but you've embraced the message and God is working and you feel it. You understand it. It's what makes you a church. It's what holds you together. So we see these four characteristics of Paul. And And because we should imitate him, I mean, Paul says that much in Ephesians, we should imitate him only as he imitates Christ. They should be characteristics of us. We see Paul's motives. Paul's motivated by the gospel. It's his sole motivation. By the message of salvation through Christ, the Son of God. Ultimately, he seeks to please and glorify God alone. Paul's maintenance, Paul trusts God for his sustenance day to day, but he works hard, he works diligently, he works with integrity because he doesn't want that message to be a burden on the people around him, which means he doesn't have any desire to make Christian living hard for them. It's going to be an ordeal enough as it is. So he's not weighing them down with a bunch of do's and don'ts and and commandments that might be difficult to follow, but he's allowing God to work in their hearts. But they're going to have to learn to trust God the same way Paul does. They're going to have to learn to trust God not only for their personal needs, but for the power to live the life of the gospel. Because we hear these things, and what we say to ourselves, don't we? I, I don't quite live up to this. I don't know that, that the primary goal of my life is to please and glorify God. Sometimes I work pretty hard at pleasing myself. Anybody feel like that? I do. Paul's saying that transformation that you're going through, that spirit that's in you, that's where the power to do this is. Rely on him. Trust him. Trust that movement in your heart that is drawing you towards the Father. And anything that interferes with being drawn towards the Father, let that go. Let the cares of the world go. Trust God. And we saw Paul's manner, his behavior. He holds himself accountable to them. They're accountable to each other and to God. He knows he's supposed to be an example, so he tries his best to lead by example. Paul's not perfect. He admits it late in his ministry. I'd like to be perfect, but I'm not there yet. He understands that. But he's doing his best to be an example to everybody else. And we saw his message. It's neither popular, uh, nor, nor is it desired. A lot of people don't want it. The gospel is an offense to the world. It is a stumbling block. And the world reacts in an angry fashion towards it. But there's eternity in the message of the gospel. There's life in the message of the gospel. And those who are being transformed, they get it. 
They have inside them this eagerness, this longing for more. Not more of the world, but for more of God and more of his word. The good news is that we already have all of God and all of his word. All we have to do is appropriate it. All we have to do is walk in it, drink it in. Paul tells Timothy to practice his faith. What? Practice his faith. First Timothy 4.15. Practice these things, all these things I've been teaching you. Immerse yourself in them so that you may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by do, so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It takes some work. It takes some discipline. But the more you practice it, the more you work at it, the easier it comes. And gradually, as you practice the things that we see in these scriptures, you'll see that your relationship with God becomes more and more important, and the cares of the world become less and less important. Because you have eternity in your heart, and eternity on your mind. So, so what kind of believer do you want to be? We've just seen a broad outline here. You want to be one who's wrapped up in the affairs of this world, controlled by them? Your joy depending upon other people, dependent upon other circumstances, controlled by other people. You want to have your eyes and heart focused on today or maybe tomorrow? Or do you want to be the type of believer that is immersed in God and his goodness with your eyes fixed firmly upon his son, Jesus Christ, and willing, being willing to endure anything this world has to throw at you for the glory to come for the glory of God? Do you understand that if you believe Jesus Christ is your Savior, if you've confessed your sins and turned towards him, do you understand that you will spend eternity with him? That's a guarantee. It's a promise. It's based on God's faithfulness, and there's nothing in all of creation more faithful than God. That's our home. That's what we are guaranteed. And we have this tendency to allow things to get in the way. Oh, God, you don't understand the situation I'm in. Yes, I do. Oh, God, you don't understand the pain I'm going through. Yes, he does. All I have to do is look at the cross. We have the promise of eternity in us. And that's the message we have. Paul is showing the Thessalonians how to do all this, how to walk it out. Step by step. He's telling us to follow. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. For you are glorious. We give you thanks for the testimony of a man who seems to fail at every turn. By any worldly measure is, is an abject failure. Oh, but by heavenly measures, he's an eternal success. We give thanks for a man that's willing to endure torture and pain and calamity and still praise you, Father. May that be what we imitate. As he turns towards you, we pray that we would be able to do the same thing by the presence and power of your spirit, moving in our hearts, drawing us to you, conforming us to your image, Father, transforming us from something that we were not and something that we are. You're your children. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Let me quote from 1 Peter as a benediction, chapter 5, starting in verse 6. I just think this is a beautiful message for the moment we're in. Humble yourselves, therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us online. Thanks for being here in the sanctuary. It's good to see a lot of faces we haven't seen in a while. We appreciate you. God bless. Pastor John back here again. If you are blessed by the service, let me ask you to do us a favor. Would you click on the like button below that little thumbs up? If you're listening on sermon audio, perhaps you can comment or even share the sermon with someone else. We'd love to hear from you. We're on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter at WBFVA. We're on the World Wide Web at WBFVA.org. Let us know if you'd like us to pray for you. If you'd like to support us financially, you can make donations through our website at WBFVA.org. Just click on Giving. You'll receive a tax-deductible receipt at the end of the year. Either way, we would love to hear from you or even have you visit us in person one Sunday. We meet at 46 Winchester Street in downtown Warrington, Virginia at 11 o'clock every Sunday morning. And now, may God bless you richly until we gather again.